Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my brilliant listeners, to your set of two remastered old-time radio episodes straight from the Black Museum. Your first tale is all about our well-known assassin, the lethal ingredient, arsenic. All it takes is one-eighth of a teaspoon, or 1,400 milligrams of arsenic, to be fatal towards an average-sized person. And in the 19th century, it was heavily unregulated. In fact, white arsenic, as it was commonly termed, was the would-be assassin's first point of call. As the toxin would mimic that of a gastrointestinal illness at first, such as cholera. So prevalent was arsenic in its use to assassinate in that period, that at its highest point of use, a woman by the name of Mary Ann Cotton murdered her mother, three husbands, a fiancé, and fifteen of her stepchildren and children for insurance payouts. So yes, arsenic, one hell of a poison. We'll see it used in today's episode, and your second tale involves a murderer with deadly aim, an accessory, and an addled mind. Who could it be? Who has access to such a gun accessory? And of course, the real question is, will they catch them? Mates, turn the lights off, turn up the sound, and let's get ready for a blast from the past with your set of two remastered episodes. Enjoy, you brilliant listeners. Black Museum. Here, in the grim stone structure on the Thames which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide. A warehouse where everyday objects, a woman's necklace, a pair of spectacles, an iron ladle, all are touched by murder. These small white boxes, they're familiar objects. They might have contained sleeping pills or a mild sedative or just aspirin. But no, they contained... Arsenic. Comparatively tasteless, isn't it, Inspector? Yes, sir. The mother I've coated on that. Obviously. Nasty way to die. And the boxes, they look so, well, innocent. Today, those white boxes can be seen in a place of special honor. In the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death. The Black Museum. Here we are, Black Museum. 
Scotland Yard's mausoleum of murder. It takes curiosity, and perhaps a little courage, to wander through this long, ghostly room, all around arranged so very neatly as the evidence of man's rages, of woman's cruelty, the rogue beast who lies waiting just beneath the veneer of civilization, waiting to kill. Yes, here, here lies death. Here death seems deliberate, murder almost moderate. Here in the echoing quiet, one is a spectator amid an orgy of violence, expressed so calmly by ordinary objects. The filing spike was created for the piercing of papers, you know, to maintain orderliness on clerk's desk, not for the purpose to which this spike was put. Piercing the neck, the base of the skull, the brain joins of the spinal column. Yeah, here we are. The white boxes, a little bit yellowed with age. The neat, spidery penmanship on the tiny labels fading now. But still legible. Curry's Pharmacy, Glasgow, Scotland, they say. And the date? January 1857. They were certain they had a case. The prosecutor for the crown. The procurator fiscal, they call it. The quiet man in charge of homicide. Inspector Webster. The prosecutor was quite definite about it. We'll have no trouble at all. It'll be a hanging. There seems to be plenty of evidence. You sound doubtful, Inspector. Juries can be emotional, you know. When that happens, the evidence goes out of the window. Juries haven't changed much. Almost a hundred years, have they? But rather, in the old tradition, let the guilty go free occasionally than have one innocent perish. They presented their case. In proper order, each fact, large or small, in sequence, was paraded before the twelve good Scotsmen who sat in the jury box there in Glasgow almost a hundred years ago. First there was the landlady, Emile D'Angeles' landlady. She told of that summer evening in 1856. Why, Mr. D'Angelier, you are dressed up this evening. <laughs> I have a reason, a very lovely reason. Do you like my waistcoat, madame? Quite striking. You ought to catch the lady's eye. I trust it will. Do just that, madame. How do you do it? Dress the fashionable on your salary, Mr. D'Angelier. Ah, that is something I have learned from the frugal Scots, madame. I have indeed. <laughs> You will excuse me. I must catch the steamer to Rowellin and the garden by moonlight. A happy little man that summer's evening, Emile D'Angelais. A happy, strutting little man in his new waistcoat, his well-pressed jacket, his smart hat. On the way to the quay to board the side-wheel steamer, met his friend Robert Dougal. Mr. Dougal was a witness, too. His story was just as simple. Emil, how are you? As if I needed to ask. You are the sport this evening. Oh, thank you for that. You look well yourself. Don't tell me if you don't want to, but I'll wager you have a rendezvous. I do. And you know, you introduced us. With Madeline? Madeline Smith? No other, my friend. But the Smiths are Rowallan. Then you've met the family? Not yet, Robert. But very soon. Tonight, just Madeline. 
How long after tonight shall I have to wait for the family to accept me? How long, little man? How long indeed? This is a good part of the problem. Robert Dougal was temporarily excused from the witness box. The next witness was a letter. A letter which tried to recapture on paper the wonder of a summer night. Young love. Oh, Emil. Oh, my darling. Madeleine, my love. Shh, whisper, sweet. They are not asleep yet. Can I whisper when my heart wishes to shout from the housetops? Emil, you are sweet. My darling, is this not a night for lovers? Come, darling. There is a quiet place, I know, where the moon will be reflected in the water, and no one will be near. Don't let the gate bang, darling. We don't want my father finding us now. A garden gate shuts softly, and footsteps, a man and a woman, fade away into the sounds of the night. It would be nice if we could leave the story here, but we can't, nor could the prosecutor. There were more letters, many, many more, written by both young people. Letters which detailed the progress of the summer and of a love affair. Madeleine, your return will coincide with the opening of a social season. You will go to all the dances, all the parties, but without me at your side. I cannot stand to picture this even to myself. Madeleine, let me be your husband. Cannot. Have faith in me. Have I not proven my love? Oh, Emil, the tears which bathe this paper, they are tears of longing, longing to be with you. There was more, much more. It all seemed endless, eternal, like the love these two pledged each other. But August moved into September and September into the fall. Present, as the prosecutor didn't fail to point out, the social round swept over Glasgow and over the Smith family, of course. Madeline was caught in the whirl with her family. Here, Robert Dugo was recalled to the witness box. This part of his evidence, if evidence it was, held a touch of wistfulness, of pathos even. Do you think this is the proper place to stand, Robert? Not proper, but correct for our purpose. They'll have to pass this way. That's quite a crowd, is there not? Mm, the public dances of the Glasgow season are always crowded. They say more matches are made at these affairs. Do not say that, my friend. This is my great fear, that she will meet someone. But she loves you. What am I? A ten-shilling packing clerk. I am nothing. Our family do not even know I exist. Where are they? Has something happened? I must... He stood there. On the stairway leading to the ballroom, waiting so impatiently. The little man in the fancy waistcoat, beneath which was so much pride and so much love. And then at long last, he saw a light on her father's arm from their carriage. Start up the stairway. She is... She's a princess. Is she not, Robert? She's a very pretty girl. But then, I'm not in love with her. <laughs> I will speak to her. No, you mustn't. Not here. Madeleine. Miss Smith. No, it would be unforgivable. Don't embarrass her like this. She passed within arm's length and seemed not to notice him, standing there waiting so eagerly for the acknowledgement which never came. 
Shortly afterwards, the two young men went into the ballroom themselves. Emile saw his Madeleine whirling in the waltz, heard her laughter. Why, Mr. Miller, I cannot allow you to speak to me like that. My father would consider... Robert, this is what I have nightmares over. Patience, Emil, patience. That is what she says. Patience, Emil, patience. She's going into the conservatory. Quick, Emil, do I dare? What, didn't you see? She looked at you, pointed with her fan. Wait for me, Robert. With pleasure, my friend. Emil, here, behind the arbor. Madeleine, oh, my dear. You shouldn't have come. Yet I'm glad you're here. If I could have only but one dance with him. Impossible, darling. My father noticed you on the steps. I told him it was Robert who spoke my name. I don't think he believes me. Let him know me. I am not ashamed of what I do. I will not be a clerk forever. Not now, not tonight. I must be quick. They will be missing me. Darling, tomorrow night, come to the house. You know my window on the ground floor with the railing. We will talk about it then. Tomorrow, after the family is asleep. The ground floor window were the cat bars to keep out cats. Or was it young lovers? A strong, if decorative, grill. There was an area entrance. According to the letters offered clearly in evidence... Emil was admitted via the area entrance to the gracious old house in Glasgow. Madeleine. Oh, Madeleine. Quickly, darling. In here, my sitting room. Here we are. We must be very quiet. My eldest sister is just above, and my father sleeps very lightly. Madeleine. When? When? I must await the proper moment. And in the meantime, must I come to the area entrance in the dark of night, sneaking like a thief? I did not steal your love. You gave it, darling. You gave it. What I gave, I can take back. No, you cannot. Of course not, dear. And we must not quarrel either. Our summer was too lovely for us to spoil it now. I have made some tea, my dear. It must be cold outside. Shall we have tea together and pretend we are the happy married couple we want to be? Of course, darling. Of course, whatever you say. Only let us... It was a domestic scene. How the letters reveled in it. Charming, delightful. Two young people pretending marriage and stayed middle age. And then, in due course and in proper chronological order, the prosecutor introduced Mr. Curry owner and chief dispenser at Curry's Glasgow Pharmacy. Yes, the defendant. It was the defendant there in the prisoner's box who bought the arsenic from me. I was told it was for the destruction of weeds and rats. The destruction of weeds and rats. Well, be that as it may, today those little white boxes can be found in the Black Museum. White is the bride's color, they say. In China, white is the color of mourning. Perhaps white was the right color for the little boxes in the Black Museum. The evidence continued. 
There was the stolid, honest police constable. He had a simple, sad little tale to tell. It began with a sound such as children make when they play with sticks on an iron rail. But this was not a child. This was a lover calling to his love. Now the onlookers were policemen. Death. Henry, for heaven's sake, you'll wake the family. I had to see you, darling. I had to. I told you, Emil, I could not see you tonight. What? Was he here again? Was who here again? You know whom I mean. That Minock. Since you mentioned it, yes, he was. So you could not see me? We must be discreet, darling. It's perfect camouflage. Father likes Mr. Minnick. As long as Father thinks I pay attention to Mr. Minnick, he will not suspect that I am in love with anyone else. Are you in love with me, Madeleine? Emil, how can you ask that? Forgive me. Forgive me, my darling. At the time, I do not know what I am doing or saying. Here it is November. The summer seems so far away. Yes, the summer. Emil, go home. I cannot let you in tonight. Madeleine, to stand here, talking through bars. You'll catch your death of cold. Glasgow in November. Damp, almost bitter. Oh, please go home, Emil, where you'll be warm and safe. I'm chilly standing here. No, not until I have held you in my arms once more. Emil, stop it. It's so late, so cold. Yes, cold and almost bitter. Good night, Emil. <laughs> Madeleine! Madeleine! You can't! You mustn't! Madeleine! I'll find a way. We will go off to South America. We will get away. Madeleine, listen to me. Here, here, no, Wachanish. It's... Uh, it's nothing, Constable. Oh, this is near the time to be rattling windy reeds. It's much too cold for serenading, you know. You do not understand. Oh, don't I? I was young myself, not so long ago. Now, on your way, young fellow. Mr. Smith is a good friend of mine. I'll no have lovesick boys disturbing his daughters this time of night. Off with you now. Get on to your house. Understand, little man? I'm telling you to move along. Yes, Constable. I understand. But did he understand? Did Emile Dachelet understand that this was the beginning of the end? That the summer was over forever? Perhaps. Perhaps not. Perhaps he wouldn't let himself understand. However, this is all conjecture. The prosecutor was concerned with facts in their proper order. And so his next piece of evidence was a letter. In view of what appears to be the termination of our affair of the heart, will you be gentleman enough to return my letters to me at once, together with my portrait? I flatter myself you have not destroyed either my picture or the missives I sent you while we felt more tenderly towards each other. There was no answer. Madeline tried another approach. Once we meant something to each other. I trust those moments are not unhappy memories. If they are happy at all, will you honor their memory by returning my letters and the miniature I gave you? Still, no answer. Emil brooded in his room, on his job. And then suddenly there was a change. The prosecutor brought this to the attention of the jury by recalling Emil's landlady to the witness box. 
she told an interesting story. Well, Mr. Dongelier, you haven't stopped at my pier glass in a long time. I have had no reason to until tonight. Oh, a lady? Yes, a lady. With a warm heart from your smile. With a warmer heart than she has shown in some time. I see. You're a faithful person, aren't you? I have always hoped I could be. You're not looking very well. I expect to see you improve in health, Mr. Dongelier, as you improve the... Problems of your heart. Thank you, madame. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you will excuse me, I must not be late tonight. I must not be late tonight, he said. Yes, tonight of all nights, he must not be late. Jauntily, the little packing clerk left the house where he lived in his furnished room. There was no record, no witness, the prosecutor admitted, of what went on that night between the jaunty Emile and the beautiful Madeline. But the landlady had more to say, and what she had to add was a tale which was neither jaunty nor beautiful. Are you ill? What's wrong? Do you want a doctor? Can I help you? Mr. Dongelier? Mr. Dongelier? Mr. Dongelier, what is it? You, you look as if you'd crawled home on your hands and knees. Yes. Yes, I did. The last block. The pain. The pain. I cannot stand the pain. I shall call a doctor. You're sick. You're very sick. The good woman hurried up the street, roused the doctor who surgery was in the corner, and together they hurried back and up the stairs to the man's shabby room. What is it, man? Where's your pain? Leave me alone. I I want to die. Good heavens, Mr. Dongelier. You will die unless you help me yourself. Madam, have you any mustard in the house? Mustard? Whatever for? An emetic. This man has been poisoned. Quickly now. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I must have some somewhere. They did their best, the doctor and the landlady. But their best was to no avail. Uh, he's gone. Oh. That end, my guess is arsenic. It'll take an autopsy to find out for certain. However, now it's the turn of the police. The police in the person of Inspector Webster gave testimony at the trial. Inspector, tell the jury what the medical stated. Death caused by a large quantity of arsenic. Taken by mouth, probably in tea. And what did you find in a small wooden chest in the victim's room, Inspector? A packet of letters in perfect chronological order from the prisoner to the deceased. Thank you, Inspector. Uh, one thing more. Did you arrest the prisoner? I did. Did you warn her that anything she might say could be used in evidence against her? I did. And what did she say? 
too bad. He was a nice little man. If he hadn't been so persistent, I might have liked him better. Thank you again, Inspector. There was more, a little more. Mr. Curry, the pharmacist, was called back to the witness box. How many times did the defendant come to your shop, sir? Three times. Each time she bought six pennyworth of arsenic. And what reasons did she give for these purchases? First, it was killing weeds in the back garden. Then it was rats at the Smith's country place. And finally, rats at their city house. Did anyone else connected with the defendant ever stop in your shop? A servant. One of the main servants from the Smith's house. He asked for prussic acid to whiten the defendant's hands, he said. I told him nice young lady shouldn't have poison like that around. I refused to sell it to him. She came for the arsenic herself about two weeks later. The defense made two points. The sweetness and the excellent background of the prisoner. The fact that no one found any evidence that the poison had been administered by the prisoner. No one saw her do it was the fact. The judge made the usual charge. The jury retired. They returned to a tense courtroom. Madeline Smith rose at the court's command and faced the jury. The foreman spoke briefly to the point. We find the case for the Crown not proven. Our verdict is not guilty. Ah! So ended the trial of Madeline Smith. Were the jury right? We shall never know. History is as silent as the little white boxes which lie upon a shelf in their customary place. Not proven, the jury said. The courtroom spectators burst into tears. Madeline Smith was too young, too lovely for the citizens of Glasgow, circa 1856, to believe her a murderess. She went free. Some 22 years ago, at the age of 90, Madeline Smith died in the United States, where she'd sought forgetfulness and a new life. Yes, they cheered when she was freed, but the whispers persisted. The whispers followed her to the new world. I don't think there really ever was a new life for Madeline Smith, because she died a spinster, and is remembered as a mystery a mystery which perhaps only the little white boxes would ever have solved. At any rate, there they are, in their customary place, and there they'll stay. In the Black Museum. And now, until we meet next time in this same place, I tell you another story about the Black Museum. I remain, as always, obediently yours. Speaking from London. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a woman's purse, a man's glove, a child's shoe, all are touched by murder.
Not a silence. Made to fit an army rifle. Made for a killer. For striking unseen and unheard. In the dark place. Interesting little the scientific gadget to absorb sound to change a sharp, cracking report into muffled gas. Suppose I'm being rather subjective about this, Sergeant, but I find myself hating that silence, huh? Yes, I understand how you feel, Inspector. The silence here, well, it's, it's filthy, isn't it? It's something like a rattlesnake. No, Sergeant, the simile's wrong. A rattlesnake gives warning before he strikes. He plays fair. Today, that silence can be seen here in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. Here lies death, violent death, in many guises, the long history of a great number of murderous deeds, on the shelves, on the tables, in the very air itself. Now, this elephant gun here, this was once used for hunting by a sportsman bred in the very best tradition, later used to shoot a friend in the back. Ah, here we are, a silencer. Metal tubes within tubes, small and stubby, designed to swallow sound. It was a weapon, too, of course, but no one thought of a weapon or of a silencer. Tonight, Herbert and Josie Martin returned from a party to their new home in the equally new residential development in the suburbs of London. Oh, it was a fine party, Josie, but I don't mind telling you I'm dead for sleep. Oh, yes. Oh, I like the new neighbors. Business days and there's time for housewarming. At the rate these new houses are renting, we'll be going to house parties for weeks on end. Might as well make up our minds to it. A man and his wife, tired in a pleasant sort of way, pleased at meeting their new neighbors and preparing for sleep. Normal, quiet, nice people in a new home. Nothing spectacular. No hint of headlines. No thought of death. Sure the doors are locked, Herbert? Mm-hmm, yes. Oh, dear, please pull down the blind, because if it blows up during the night, it'll flap out the window and wake us, like last oh, night. Oh, all right. If you didn't insist on opening the windows from the top, Josie, the blinds wouldn't blow. Herbert! Herbert, what is it? Herbert! What is it? What's taking you? A man reaches up to pull down a window blind. The lighted lamp is behind him. A bullet stars the window pane. The man is dead. A short while later, a telephone rings in an office in Scotland Yard. Inspector Foster here. Uh, Sergeant Williams speaking, sir. There's a call come through from Hempstead Oval. A Herbert Martin, 
shot as he was pulling down the blind in his bedroom. Anyone with him? Yeah, his wife, sir. Any other witnesses? No, sir, not at the moment. Very well, Williams. Bring a car round and we'll have a look at the situation. I realise this has been a terrible shock, Mrs. Martin, but we need your help at once. Oh, anything, Inspector. Anything at all. Did your husband have any enemies that you know? Oh, no, no one. No one. Any trouble in his business? No, nothing, no. What was his business? Insurance. Accident, mostly. It was going on so well, that's how we could afford to move out here. Then you've only come here recently. Three months ago. <coughs> we, we were one of the first tenants. Seemed such a nice place. Everything's so new. Questions and more questions. But there was obviously nothing Mrs. Martin could tell the inspector. All she knew was what she'd seen. One point puzzled him. The inspector came back to it several times. And you're certain, Mrs. Martin, that you heard no shot? No, nothing. Just, just the sort of noise of the glass. And then, how it Well, it's possible, sir. The extreme range, the sound of a shot might have followed the arrival of the bullet. Mrs. Martin? No, I'm sure. I'd have noticed. I saw them seem so strange. There wasn't any sound. Just the hole in the window and my husband sort of crumpling up and falling. Well, and then, that's not uh, much to go on. Perhaps the bullet will tell us something. Meanwhile, we'll do our best, Mrs. Martin. We'll try to do our best. There was very little for the police to start over. A close scrutiny of Herbert Martin's life brought nothing to light. Martin's manner of living, the conduct of his business were exemplary. His friends, his business associates, his new neighbors, all had nothing but praise for Herbert Martin. Death had come out of the dark. This alone was ground for speculation, particularly among the neighbors, Sidney and Elizabeth Davis, brother and sister, were no exceptions. I can't help but think, Sidney. It's so peaceful here. And that poor man barely in his grave. Well, it is pleasant. And it would be if it... Only... Oh, do you suppose his poor wife will keep the house now? I doubt it. But uh, perhaps have you offered to help her, Elizabeth? Well, I have. It'll take her quite a while to make up her mind. You see? You see, she's all alone for so. Sidney, I can't help but wonder. You know, what? The... what is oh. it, Elizabeth? Oh. Oh, I, I have the strangest, strangest. What? It's Shelby's. Oh, Sydney. Elizabeth. Oh, help me. Help me. Elizabeth. Death had come to Hampstead Oval once again. And you're absolutely sure you had no shot, Mr. Davis? Absolutely, Inspector. One moment my sister was speaking to me about Mrs. Martin. The next moment she was dying in my arms. There was no sound, only the blood. I see. Mr. Davis, do you know the people who live in this development? Nearly all of them. We, well, we felt rather like pioneers, I suppose, with the development being so new. We all became friendly. And perhaps you can tell me, are there any ex-service men living here? Yes, there are two. Nice chaps. Wives and children, you know. 
May I ask why you inquire? Because the bullet which killed Mr. Martin came from an Arnie issue rifle, and I suspect the same thing will be found true in your sister's case. If it is true, we'll have that much at least to go off. More, the markings on both bullets were identical. The same weapon had been used. Inspector Foster sent Detective Sergeant Williams visiting. Yes? And um, are you Thomas Larkin? I am. Oh, excuse me, sir. I'm Detective Sergeant Williams, CID. Here are my credentials. Oh, come in, Sergeant. Will you come into the living room? Uh, I, I'll only keep you a moment, Mr. Larkin. I want to speak about the Martin and Davis murders. Yes, yes, of course. Do you happen to have a rifle in your possession, sir? No, I gave all that up when I was discharged. If I never see a weapon again, it'll be too soon. I believe your husband is an ex-serviceman, Mrs. Goodson. Yes, he is. Five years of service, eighth army, and a general Montgomery. I see. Uh, now, tell me, uh, did he by any chance uh, retain any weapon when he left the service? No. Is there any weapon in your house that you know of? Yes. Oh. A Woodley. Oh, really? It, well, frankly, my husband insists we keep it. He, he's got a license for it, but it frightens me half to death just to have it in the house. What with the children around and all. Oh, Sergeant, are all of us in danger here? Oh, you needn't worry. Don't you have any idea who or what may be behind these dreadful shootings? Nothing, sir. I drew a complete blank. I rather thought you would. Incidentally, pathology found that Davis' bullet and ballistics reports it's identical with the one they recovered from Martin's body. Well, whoever he is, he's a fabulous shot, sir. And he uses a silencer. That's the only explanation I have for the absence of sound. It's not very much to go on. <laughs> Inspector Foster here. Uh, this is Mrs. Thomas Larkin, Inspector. My husband and I live on Hempstead Oval. Yes, Mrs. Larkin, I know. What can I do for you? Well, uh, Mr. Larkin and I have called a meeting in our house for this evening. Uh, we hoped you and Sergeant Williams could be with us. What's the purpose of your meeting, Mum? Oh, the entire development is living in fear, Inspector. We want to try to find some way to protect ourselves. Uh, we, uh, we thought you might have some advice to offer. I'm somewhat doubtful about the advice, Mrs. Larkin. But Sergeant Williams and I will be at your meeting. Have you set the time for it as yet? They came that evening to the Larkin living room. Inspector Foster waited in the hallway with the Larkins. Is everyone here, Mr. Larkin? I think so, sir. Uh, Mr. Munden said he'd be over. His wife wanted to stay with their little boy. Well, he's the only one missing, then. Yes, that's right. How did you reach these people? By telephone? It's not much trouble to do that. We're all on party lines. I see. Someone's at the back door, Tom. Must be Monday. I'll get it. You should excuse me, Mrs. Larkin. Yes, of course. Go ahead, Inspector. Funny, coming to the back door. I told his wife particularly about the front door and the precaution. No matter. At least I don't believe it will matter. Here we are. Uh, hello, Monday. Jad, you can make it. Sorry, I'm late, Larkin. I rather thought the back way would present less opportunity for this unknown marksman to... Uh, uh. Mundin, good grief up that door, Larkin. You're a perfect target yourself standing there. Today that silencer can be seen here in the Black Museum.
neighbor Munden was dead. The rifle bullet neatly placed in the back of his head. The silent marksman was another story entirely. Who he was, where he was, why he struck, were the unanswered questions which Inspector Foster had to face as he stood before the terror-stricken residence of Hampstead Oval. All I can say is the police are doing anything and everything to find this killer. And in the meantime, Inspector? I'll answer that. In the meantime, we can all get picked off as my sister was, or Martin, or Monday. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. He's right, Inspector. I, for one, won't leave my children open to the risk of being orphaned or worse. No. Oh, no. Moving away, giving up your homes, won't find a murderer. I'm asking you, all of you, to do something quite difficult under present circumstances. Yes. I want you to stay here for another few days. Oh, Be no, patient. No, no. Remain indoors at night. Stay away from doors and windows. If it's possible to find him, and that is always possible, we'll do it. Oh, I promise you this, that the entire machinery of the London... They watched him, the good neighbors of Hempstead Oval, with doubt and fear in their eyes. But they did as Inspector Foster asked. They stayed in their homes and waited. The welcome light of morning found the inspector and his sergeant with Tom Arkin in the kitchen of his home. You're about the same height as London, aren't you, Larkin? Just about. Good. Sergeant? Yes, sir. Set up the transit here where Munden was standing when he was hit and adjust its height for Mr. Larkin. Uh, very good, sir. A surveyor's transit in my kitchen? I don't understand, Inspector. You will shortly. Almost ready, Sergeant? Yes. The men worked quickly, methodically. The transit was set up, the lens of the telescope facing the open back door. Inspector Foster adjusted the eyepiece and then slowly scanned from lintel to lintel through the open doorway. Back he moved the instrument, adjusting it vertically as well as horizontally, turning the brass thumbscrew carefully, precisely. Stepped away from the transit. That seems to be the best possibility, Sergeant. See for yourself. Uh, thank you, sir. Yes, it lines up well. The angle seems to be about right. Shall we have a look at it? Uh, yes. Care to come with us, Larkin? Yes, I would. A tree out there with a clear line of fire right through your back door. The distance seems to be about... 500 yards. So that's what the transit was for. Exactly. Let's go, shall we? Too bad it's been so dry lately. There might have been footprints. And marks on the tree trunk, sir. Where? Uh, here, here. Look, notice the scraping on this bark, sir. As if someone in heavy boots had climbed the tree. And it's recent, too. You know, for a boost up, Sergeant? Uh, yes. I... <laughs> there are more marks up here, sir. Quite a comfortable perch. Huh. Hello, the, the limb forks here. Scratches on the bark. Huh. Could have been a rifle wasted here. Very good. Come on down, Sergeant. All right. Inspector, I may have found something over here, under this branch. Don't touch anything, Larkin. Right here, look. In the weeds. Looks like a rifle carpet to me. Brass. The sun caught it. Good man. Good eyesight. Take care of that, Sergeant. Yes, Once we find the rifle and its owner, that bit of brass may well send him up 13 steps early one morning. Starting from nothing, the facts were coming together one by one. In the quiet office at the yard, the boot marks on the tree trunk, Sergeant, they were rather close to the ground. I noticed your first jump was at least two feet higher. Yes, I wasn't carrying a rifle, sir. 
No, but a man of average weight and good condition would have made markings closer to yours. I'd say this fellow was either very heavy or not exactly young, or past middle age at least. The beginnings of a description. Either military or hunting experience to be able to shoot like that at night. The beginnings of a background. Whoever it was must have lived in that area for some time to know the position of that tree in relation to Larkin's back door. Start a quiet house-to-house -house check, Williams. Very good, sir. Have the men watch for anyone who fits these points. Yes, sir. Then find me a detailed ordinance map of Hampstead Oval. The builder or the renting agent will have one. We find one sniper's perch. I'm curious about the other. Interesting layout, architecturally. Oh. According to the contour of the land. Main line of the houses seems to curve round this rise just off centre. <laughs> it must have been quite a place in the old days. Oh? Who were there to build it, tell me? An estate sold for taxes. Family named, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, Wardman. Old line. The, the grant went back nearly to the first Queen Elizabeth. History. Fascinating. Any more? <laughs> yes, quite a job with you, fellow. Seems the, the land was sold on condition that the sole survivor of the family be given a house rent-free for the rest of his life. And this person is still there? Uh, seems to be. An elderly gentleman. Keeps very much to himself. Uh, uh, this is his house here, uh, on the end of the main line. I see. Now then, this would be the Martin place, and this the Davis. Yeah, that's right, sir. The Martin bedroom and the Davis porch face the same way along that curve of the hill. Yes, that's it, sir. It seems they didn't originally intend to build on the hill, but they, they've started a new house right here. The, the fellow sketched in for me. The demand's been very high. <laughs> Wouldn't mind living there myself. After we get this killer, eh, Sergeant? Oh, yes, sir, after. Pass me that fellow, William. All right. Thank you. Here, Williams. The Martin window and the Davis porch are in direct, clear line with the new building. Hmm. I wonder now. I assume the contractor isn't working his men at night. Hmm, I wonder now. Uh, this is the top floor, Inspector. Hard wood isn't in yet, but that floor will take your weight. That's the dormer window you asked about. Look around, will you, Sergeant? Very good, sir. About the progress of this building. Yes, sir. How long has this top floor been at this half-finished day? About a fortnight, sir. Glaciers are due end of this week. Carpenters will get the flooring right after that. Anyone here at night? Yes, there's a watchman for the old development. One of his stations is just across the road. You can see it through the window. There. I see. I have them, sir. Here. They were lying along the wall, under the window. <clears throat> now, who do this? Tenpenny nails in the windowsill. Someone will catch it for this. No doubt someone will. Someone put those nails in to help steady a rifle. The same someone who left those two brass cartridge cases behind him. How do you catch a killer who strikes silently in the darkness? How do you match his craftiness? Perhaps you say to Tom Larkin, It may be dangerous, Larkin. Will you cooperate? Oh, I've been under fire before now, Inspector. Very well. Now then, 
I believe someone told me the telephones hereabouts are on party line. A telephone call is made on the party line. I want to talk to you, Goodson, about this killer. I think I know who it is. I'll walk over in half hour with a friend of mine, and I'm picking up Sid Davis on the way. No mention, of course, that the friend is Sergeant Williams, C.I.D., who will walk alongside Tom Larkin, staying between him and the new house on the hill. No mention of the inspector crouched on the hillside in the dark shadow of the half-built house. All right, you are certain the men know the orders, Mason? Yes, sir. They run one into the cordon, but no one gets out, except the watchman. Very good. Now, let's see. Yes. Time Williams and Larkin were starting on the walk. Let me have the glasses, Mason. Through the night glasses, the inspector watched. Almost half a mile away, two men left the Larkin house, started slowly along the road. On the hillside, the shadow slipped quietly toward the half-finished house. The inspector whispered. Hear that? Not a sound now. Unsuspecting, the shadow moved through the line of police, past the hidden inspector, into the building. Come along, Mason. He's gone into the house. Into the empty building. Empty, except for a killer. Climbing steadily. No lights. Only the vague outline of the unpainted banister and the clean smell of new wood. Suddenly the footsteps ahead stop. The inspector and his companion pause at the head of the stairway. The glassless window shows the night sky bright with stars. A black shadow kneels at the sill, places a long, heavy object between the two tendony nails. All right, Mason, take him. No, 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 take me. No, I have a right here. Better than anyone. I, I have a right. <laughs> You'll be taken in charge for murder. I must warn you that anything you say may be taken down in writing. Never and... mind, Mason. He doesn't understand. Yes, sir. You're Philip Wardman, aren't you? I am. Who are you? You seem to be a gentleman. My name's Foster. Why are you here in this empty building, Mr. Wardman? I have a right. This, this is my land. My family's land. They told me when I sold it for the money, I could go on living here. They built houses, bought strangers. I'm driving them out. I'm hunting them out. And I hunted in Africa. <laughs> and you were a boy. It's my life. I came to live on my land. Christmas is that a law. There's a law, too, Mr. Walker, about rifles like this. And silences. <laughs> silences. <laughs> I'm a good start, eh? Pick him up like quail. Tell me the silencer. First to spoil the accuracy of a rifle. And not mine. I'm good. I'm trophies. When I was younger, they never knew. <laughs> they never knew. <laughs> All right. Take him downstairs. You were an excellent shot, Mr. Warman. Even with a silencer. And today that silencer can be seen in its place. Here in the Black Museum. It's true, of course, that in many countries, men have loved their land to the point of desperation. Philip Wardman loved his to the point of madness and murder. 
The rifle belonged to his grandson, a veteran living far away in Canada. Where the old man bought the silencer was never learned. The secret of that went with Philip Wardman to the place where his bitter, lonely life drew to its close. The silencer itself remains in its usual place in the Black Museum. Now, until we meet next time, I tell you another story about the Black Museum. I remain as always obediently yours. Well, mates, the first case was so sad and really mysterious. One of the first in a long while where the episode is unresolved, completely unsolved, and we're left hanging there, thinking, surely they've found out who it was. Nope, Robert just died of arsenic poisoning and no one knew why. Do you think it was his partner-to-be that did it? in a bid to be free from his time-consuming love. Or perhaps, and this is my own thoughts here, he used arsenic to have her feel sorry for him, to only have used too large a dose and passed on. When she called the doctor, and the doctor came, he said, Leave me alone. I, I want to die. I can't help feel just a tinge of embarrassment in his voice, Listen carefully, you might see what I mean. What are your thoughts on this? Assassinated or killed by mistake? Now, I've done a bit of researching, and my previous statements were based on what I listened and observed in today's episode. But upon digging deeper in this case, it turns out this story is based on the trial of Madeline Smith. The main reason why she didn't receive the conviction as the murderer is simply because no one saw her do it, or could tie her to the scene of the crime. There were receipts documenting the purchase of the arsenic, but no correlation between this and the letters sent to El Anglier. The only motivation was that El Anglier could have or did in fact threaten Madeline with exposing their relationship to her family and friends. You see, they were of different social castes, and that was the motivation, or at least People thought it was enough motivation to use arsenic to get rid of him. But there just was not enough evidence present on that trial to prove it. One more thing though, there was a witness that purported to have seen Madeline at El Anglia's house before his death. But this evidence was brought up during the trial and as a result wasn't allowed to be used on the case. <sighs> Morbid yet fascinating. And the second episode with the silencer? I had no idea that was coming. A crazy man at the end, taking out people in his hometown due to an agreement of his land and property, providing him some license to kill? Goodness! And I think that these cases were real, folks. That's nuts. Mates, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I want to thank my Ode Night Tea Titan legend, Maya, for being amazing and supporting the podcast at this level leaps and bounds thanks to you mate i've almost finished my website thanks to your support and i'm just ironing out the kinks also thanks to your support i've used rx7 and advanced to clean up today's audio the level of quality on the otrs is all thanks to you mate thank you so much
and my two awesome white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer. Mates, thank you so much for your support. I've been working hard on fine-tuning the show with better sound effects and improved music. And thanks to you, it's been paying off. Again, thank you both so much. And of course, my awesome Elgrain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, and Tea Time Drinker One. Thank all of you, the people that keep this podcast lights on every month. If you want to be a legend like these guys and gals and support this show directly, visit my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT, where you can donate directly and see this show grow thanks to your support. And I'm constantly finding new ways to shift my energy into different aspects of the show. And I chat directly to those that support the podcast, get their ideas and find out where they think they'd like my time spent. So it could be true crime, fey research, cryptid investigation. Either way, you lovelies get to influence the show's content. All the while, all of us having a blast listening and creating it. Again, thank you to all my supporters. Have a wonderful Monday. And as always, till next we meet.